Greetings and salutations, friends, and welcome back to The Arcade. We are your video game podcast here, back with you again as we continue our march through February, coming to you here on Valentine's Weekend. So glad that you can choose us as your sweetheart, as we have chosen you as our sweetheart as well, and we thank you so much for being together once again. I am Mike the Legend, who is uh, glad that we can all be back together here under the umbrella of love peace, together, happiness, kindness, and just all the other good feelings that uh, make the world go round, really. Yes, and uh, I'm the other voice on this program. This week I'm Dennis, the man who wants to send Old Man Winter to a nursing home. <laughs> In stark contrast with the messaging that Mike the Legend just basically uh, opened the show with. Um, I'm, espousing, feel- <laughs> I'm espousing love and togetherness, and you're all, hey, I want to send somebody down the creek without a paddle. Yeah, I mean, I feel no love for Old Man Winter. Now, granted, um, depending on where you're in the world you're listening to this program from, you might think, well, that's uh, a little bit harsh. Like, we're in the middle of February, like the worst of winters behind us. Well, I implore you to look at the uh, the forecast for Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is a city in the center of Canada, which is where Mike the Legend and myself um, are based. And it's... Uh, it's been cold as hell the last two weeks, and it's going to be cold as hell for the next week. And I honestly can't remember the last time that we've had a cold snap this bad in February for this long. Yes, I, there's a couple caveats here. I mean, we are from Winnipeg. We have spent our whole lives here, so we know a thing or two about winter and cold temperatures. That aspect is not new. Yeah, exactly. That's not the part I'm complaining about. I mean... Minus 40 is no, like, I'm, I'm, I'm not used to minus 40. No one's used to minus 40, but we've experienced it before. We know what to expect, and generally there's ways to avoid it, but we also know that with minus 40 comes usually a time limit. Like, it's usually, you know, early, middle January, usually lasts about a week and a bit. That's the time when you get the really cold snap. This, however, is the middle of February, and it's been going for a couple of weeks, and it looks like it's going to be going for another week or so, at least. Yes, we, we've had two weeks of this extreme cold weather already, and uh, the reprieve that might be in the offing is barely a reprieve. It's it's a slight reprieve. Slight reprieve. Basically, the difference being that you're, you will get frostbite in minutes instead of instantaneous. Yeah. Like, it's so cold that... You know, just opening the front door to check the mailbox is enough to maybe go, maybe I should wear, you know, a sweater for this. Maybe I should put on, you know, some gloves just to open up the mailbox. <laughs> I took the garbage out the other day and my hands literally stuck to the doorknob. They weren't wet. They were just, you know, an adequately amount of hydrated like a human hand is supposed to be. And that caused it to stick to the doorknob. That's how cold it was outside. Yeah, I I believe it. Actually, the uh, I had an instance, uh, I believe, a few days ago where I was uh, exiting uh, my the staff door of my workplace back into the exterior parking lot. So this is the exterior most door I was encountering, and uh, 
went to go open it and was trying to open it with uh, my knuckles. So I had made a f- uh, fist with my left hand, you know, not wanting to use fingertips for with all the COVIDs and whatnot and all the sick people and disgusting people around. So uh, knuckles, right, to avoid the fingertips of touching the surface and had my knuckles pressed against the, the door handle to open it. It's not quite going. And so what had happened, because of the extreme cold, the door... And its metal frame had frozen and uh, was kind of sticking in parts. So I'm kind of still pressing on the handle, trying to open it and trying to wedge it open. And eventually I do get it open with a good boot to the bottom corner of the door. Get it open, make my way out of the uh, the building into the back parking lot, take my hand off the handle where it basically had remained pressed. My clenched fist and knuckles pressed against this handle for maybe 30 seconds uh, that I was trying to make my way out. And I noticed that, huh, my knuckle kind of hurts and looked at it and there was just a red spot on it. So I don't know if that was a touch of frostbite or I just peeled off a bit of skin. But either way, it stung that night and into the next day because I was touching a metal surface when it was minus goddamn 40, if if not colder. Yeah. Again, maybe 30 seconds, maybe 30 seconds. So good times. It's uh, the kind of cold where your eyes hurt if you're wearing glasses outside for any period of time. Yeah. Like, do you find this too? You you kind of get the feeling of, like, brain freeze with your glasses in the cold? Yeah, a little bit. Um, the the one I find, like, I'm I'm not generally, like, as, like, asthmatic or anything. I, in hindsight, I might be mildly asthmatic because... Like, I don't know, or maybe this is just an effect of the cold, but I find if I'm outside breathing in air that's that cold for, you know, more than a couple of minutes, I'll come inside and then all of a sudden I'll have just like, you know, a little bit of a wheezy cough. <laughs> and the only thing that makes it go away is to basically stand in the bathroom with the shower running full blast so I can get a bit of that steam in there. <laughs> Interesting. Actually, on that note, what I have found in this extreme cold snap is during these COVID times, we're all wearing our face masks if we are uh, basically out and amongst people. But if I am outside for any period of time, I find it easier to breathe if I have my face mask on. Yeah. Yeah, or at least like a scarf or something. Yeah. Uh, so you're keeping the heat uh, and warm moisture that you're expelling just kind of right close to your face, and that makes it easier to breathe. I did... I think it was about a week or two ago, towards the start of this extreme cold snap, I got into the back parking lot of my office and uh, took the mask off because I figured, oh, I don't need it. I'm outside. You know, no problems. No one around me. No big whoop. Take it off. And, you know, my first breath was, yeah, as I inhaled the cold air. Oh, and, and also, you know, because this is something that I often find is helpful for any American listeners. Um, just, just for a little bit of context, minus 30 or minus 40 Celsius is minus 40 Fahrenheit. That's, that's the, the equalization point. So in case you're kind of like trying to wrap your head around how cold it is, that's how cold it is. And that should be a shocking number to you from what I understand. I mean, the, the numeric value of minus 40, you know, is shocking to you and I because we're, but not terribly shocking. We've seen it and are experiencing it, and hell, we're maligning it for the first 10 minutes of this program. But, you know, minus 40 is on its face is not that shocking to us, but I can see how it would be shocking to other people in other parts of the world. Yeah, but I, I just mean in general, um, for our American listeners who don't 
know, you know, who, who like us, like whenever we hear a Fahrenheit number, we have to do all that math equation and figure out, well, what is that in Celsius? Because, you know, we learn different things and it's, you know, I, I frankly, Fahrenheit values basically mean nothing to me. I'm, I'm sorry to say, um, and I'm sure it, it goes the other way as well. Like Celsius values mean nothing to you as well in the States. So I'm just providing that little thing. Like it's, it's a little bit of, it's a fun little tidbit where, um, minus 40 is the same thing in both because of just how the, the scale works. So minus 40 Celsius, which I think there's no one in the world who's going to think, say minus 40 is a reasonable temperature either in Celsius or Fahrenheit. So. Yeah, that's what we're dealing with. And we're not really exaggerating here. Like, if you look at our, like, there is the other thing too, you know, um, minus 40 is, you know, sometimes conflated with, you know, the wind chill temperature because there's the other thing, you know, not, not to get or explaining, you know, basic weather concepts or anything to people, but, you know, there's, there's the actual temperature and then there's the feels like temperature, which is caused by the wind chill, which is, you know, things obviously feel colder when there's a wind blowing cold air around, like wind is going to make things sting on your face a lot more if you're kind of walking through it. So like they'll, I think actually for tonight, the the forecast, for example, is minus 38 Celsius. And with the wind chill, it feels like minus 48, which is closer to minus 50. So, so yeah, I'm not just using, you know, the the quote unquote exaggerated wind chill number. I'm actually saying this is a real minus 40 where you sit in it and just, you know, with no wind, that's what it is. So, yeah. And then even the slightest bit of wind just makes it that much more horrible. Yeah. Just appallingly horrible. Hearing you kind of break it down into uh, the comparison for the the Fahrenheit there reminds me of uh, an, ins- uh, an instance, an encounter I had actually last year. Uh, yeah, I think it was last year, if not, uh, you know, last you know, a couple months before that, uh, where I was at a hotel bar, just kind of uh, after my work for the day was done, and I was just kind of, you know, just there and vibing and talking with some other, you know, uh, people around the bar as well. And there was a uh, man from Amsterdam who was in town staying at this hotel. Him and I got talking, and out of curiosity, I asked him in the dead of winter, how cold does it get? And he said, yeah, about zero. So he asked, well, how, to- how cold does it get where uh, you're from? Well, before he could, uh, you know, after he was done his question, I immediately re- responded with some expletives that expressed my feelings about just how good he's got it in Amsterdam um, for their coldest cold, zero. And then I told him it gets down to uh, minus 40, if not minus 50 Celsius. And uh, he basically looked at me and said, that's not a real number. <laughs> that's that's not a real temperature. I said, it is. It absolutely is. Yeah. It also reminds me of... Uh, a time where you and I actually, we went down to, uh, Magfest, which was the music and games festival over in, um, uh, the DC area. I think the first time we went, it was in Maryland. Yes, it was. Uh, yeah. So, you know, we were, we were out for breakfast with some American friends. Uh, one of the people was from Florida and it, I think, what was the temperature? It was like minus one or maybe two degrees or something like that. It, it was single digits, uh, you know, either above or below zero, but it was actually really nice. I think it was a sunny morning that day too. Yeah. So you and I, like, I don't think either one of us packed winter gear because like winter gear to us is like, well, 
you know, you can pretty much get away with a spring jacket until like, you know, minus five or six or whatever. And it wasn't really supposed to get that cold. So we had spring jackets and whatever. And <laughs> we were, we were out for breakfast and the guy from Florida and like, well, actually all the people from the States were bundled up wearing toques and like winter jackets and stuff. And there we are wearing baseball caps and like, you know, these spring, light spring jackets. And they're like, uh, aren't you guys cold? And we're like, no. <laughs> we're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> we're like, this is January and it's like, you know, whatever the temperature, plus five, minus five, whatever it is. We're like, this is, this is like spring weather where we're from. And everyone was just kind of like, what the hell are you talking about? Ah. <laughs> and they were all like freezing and, yeah, we, we found it very amusing. I, I just remember that. It was just kind of like, yeah. I recall one of the guys uh, during our jaunt to get food at that trip, too, kind of being a little freaked out by the presence of snow on the ground. And you and I had the inverse reaction where uh, we were freaked out by the lack of snow on the ground. Yeah, like what he considered snow, we looked at and we didn't even – it didn't register as snow to us. <laughs> It's like, oh, like, yes, the hotel we were staying at still had its fountain running and still operational. Yeah. It's outdoor fountain, by the way. It's water feature to look nice from the main, you know, road in front, you know, still was operating, still moving liquid water with no problems whatsoever. Yeah. You and I were freaked out by that. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Because, again, where we're from, in the middle of January – any such fountain would be covered with five feet of snow? Yes, Iced it, over like crazy, shut down for the season? Oh, it would have been shut down probably in October once uh, the temperature would dip below zero on the regular. Yeah. So, good times. Uh, th- this is us just basically being old men and maligning the weather. But the uh, thing you notice as you get older is you malign the weather more and more. Yeah. It just happens. Yeah, it's... Uh... It's it's one of those things when you're younger, you're just like, well, old man, whatever. But then (laughs) as you get older, you're like, oh, now I understand why. Because, like, I like to complain about the things I have no control over because I have no control over them. And it sucks. It's like this is just a catharsis. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, commiserating with other people about the things we don't have control over. It, It is what is bonding us. So, yes. Yes. So so that is us commiserating about the extreme cold where we are. It might be cold where you are as well, unlikely to the same degree. Uh, and if it is, then you know what we are talking about. And perhaps you are sharing in the uh, the misery as well. And perhaps enjoy hearing other people talk about it and uh, express the words we are saying about the cold. No one likes it. No one appreciates it. And all those people who are outside biking, running in the weather, I look at them like they're weirdos. They're freaks. There's something wrong with them. Yeah, I mean, good on you for trying to, you know, take matters into your own hands. But, like, you do realize the risk that you're running to yourself, right? Like, this is the the weather where you don't really go outside. You're not supposed to do stuff outside. Yeah, like, frostbite's no joke. It can happen, but uh, we hope all of you out there, uh, regardless of the conditions, are staying safe, staying uh, healthy, staying at a, a respectable, reasonable temperature, avoiding the minus 40s of the world as best you can. And uh, don't worry, we'll get through this together. Uh, the weather will eventually break. There will be warm days ahead, or at least these are the lies we tell ourselves here in the midst of this cold snap, when it just feels like there's no warmth ever again. Yeah. 
Like, we can see the sun, and for most of this cold snap, it has been sunny and clear blue skies for these, the most part of these past two weeks. Yeah, it's very deceptive looking. Like, it's, it looks like it's nice outside until you open the door and then go, holy crap! <laughs> yes, you go to open the door and there's clearly frost right on the handle and your door is sticking and not wanting to open and you figure, oh, well, guess I'm not leaving the house today. Yeah, pretty much. Old Man Winter has decided, it's a snow day. I'm inside. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, work. Sorry, everything else I was going to do today. It's too cold. Too cold to go out. Nature has decided. Yep. But, uh, so that is us. That is being, us being old men talking about, uh, you know, the weather and, uh, it's what we do best. But, uh, another thing we do best on this show is talking about the, uh, the lighthearted stories, the, uh, the stories that are just an extra special kind of special that uh, you may have missed over the past several days, uh, may have not come across your radar, your news feed, or, uh, you heard about them. You just kind of in passing, maybe only read a headline, whatever the case might be. We have two ludicrous leadoffs here to present to you this week. And they kind of tie into uh, things we've spoken about in the past couple of weeks. Uh, certainly the second one does uh, tie directly into what we've spoken about, a topic we've spoken about in the past several weeks. Uh, but this first ludicrous leadoff ties into uh, uh, something we spoke about on our second year in review program. So one of the main topics we spoke about on that second year in review program was the prevalence of old animated series receiving new life. Yeah, so, like, we talked about it then. There was Animaniacs, there was Looney Tunes, or um, I should say um, Tiny Tunes Adventures, uh, getting a, you know, among other shows, getting reboots. Yeah, Beavis um, and Butthead, yeah, Ren and Stimpy. Yeah, like, a lot of, like, the, the classics from the 90s, and those were classics from the 90s, but the 90s was, like, a, a long time ago. Like, the 90s, like, the early 90s was, you know... 30 plus years ago. So we're, you know, now nostalgia, you could argue is, you know, well, I, I guess you could argue for any amount of time being nostalgic, but um, like just to sort of use a little bit of a, uh, maybe a bit of a dated reference here, the wonder years, when it was made, it was made about the 1950s and it was made in the eighties. So like, or, or was it the sixties? I think it was the sixties. Yeah. So anyways, the 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 gap between the wonder years the the time it was about and when it was made was 20 years like so i think it was made in like 85 or 6 or something and it was about 65 66 was when it started and it went on for whatever number of years in that time range so now for a wonder years to be made now it would have to be you know fondly looking back at stuff from the early 2000s. Which is crazy to think about. Yeah. And slightly so, disturbing. Yeah. So, yeah, it's definitely like, uh, yeah, slightly. Yeah. Well, anyways, <laughs> it's just because we remember that time, you know, as, you know, people who were not children, <laughs> we were like full disclosure, Mike, the legend and myself, we graduated from high school It'll be 19 years ago pretty soon. <laughs> yeah, coming up this, uh, this, uh, spring slash summer, it'll be 19 years. So that's, uh, that's a goodish amount of time ago. Yeah. 
But one thing that, uh, you know, kind of happens once you're out of school is you can kind of stay up later and, uh, you know, various programs and experience you, experiences you have in that post high school time are very formative. And again, tying it back into something we spoke about on our second, uh, year interview program from earlier this year is that one of the shows that is being renewed is, or getting new life is a show that we watched post high school was a cult show at that time. Uh, and, Continued to maintain a cult status, although it really didn't get a lot of respect from its broadcast network or uh, reach a wide viewership. But that cult-dedicated audience is going to allow Clone High to receive a second life. Yes. So we and- spoke about it on the year in review show because uh, production on a new Clone High had been announced back last summer. But we never had any more details beyond that. And now we finally have more details. Yeah, so... We, it's not just, so, so first of all, it doesn't seem like it's going to be a continuation of the original series, which is fine. Cause you know, I, I recently watched the original series. It still holds up, but it's very much about a different time in television that is like a long time past. Like it was very much parodying shows like, you know, Dawson's Creek and whatnot, uh, like the, the kind of late nineties, early two thousands high school drama you know, because that's the time it was from. It, like, Clone High came out and was, you know, out. It had one season. It was released in 2002. It ran during 2002. And that was it. Um, but, it, you know, the, the shows that it was parodying, parodying at the time were very much like Melrose Place. Like, I think Melrose Place would have been like or, – or Dawson's Creek. Sorry, not Melrose Place maybe, but – or maybe both. <laughs> they all kind of rolled the – they run together in my head as like things of that type of show, but that's what Clone High was parodying. Yes, angsty teenage drama. Yeah, exactly. So at you know, the original did a good job of parodying that, but it's also been eighteen, nineteen years since Clone High was on the air. And even though it did end on a cliffhanger, if you've never watched it before, I don't think there's any risk in me spoiling that. It's I'm not gonna say what the cliffhanger was, and it was also just kind of a funny way to end a series as well, even if it, as it did end that way. Um, yeah, like the, it's coming back as a reboot. So to me, that means like they're starting fresh, starting, you know, without any sort of preconceived notions. Like I'm sure the general premise will be the same because it is clone high where, you know, there's going to be the, they have DNA from various, you know, historical figures, you know, Abraham Lincoln, John F. Kennedy, Mahatma Gandhi, Genghis Khan, like whatever else, you know, various classic historical figures, and they're all in high school together. For whatever purpose, there's like a board of shadowy figures, government figures that all were kind of overseeing them generally. But yeah, that's the whole crux of the show. And, you know, we were kind of excited to see the idea come back. But I think we're even more excited now because we see it's coming to HBO Max and not just for one season. They've got, they're, they're returning for two seasons. Now, how, however many episodes that will tally, we don't know, uh, but it is simply listed in the official press release as a two season order of Clone High. 
And I'm also encouraged by the fact that Phil Lord and Chris Miller and Bill Lawrence, the original trio who developed Clone High in the first place and brought it to air back in 2002, are still going to be involved, although Phil Lord and Chris Miller are going to be involved as executive producers. So they're not the day-to-day showrunners on this program because their stock in Hollywood has risen to crazy degrees. They're very busy people, very in demand, but they will, I guess, have some tangential relationship with this new Clone High reboot. However, what heartens me is the fact that uh, the new showrunner of this new Clone High is going to be a person named Erica Rivanoa, who was a writer on the original series of Clone High and has gone on to write for things like South Park, and she was a writer on the, the Borat sequel, and she is going to be the one who's the uh, showrunner, the day-to-day uh, producer, executive producer of this new Clone High series, which, there you go, that's connective thread and tissue back to the original series. So, and that is a direct pipeline and funnel for the spirit of the original to still exist in this new one. Yeah, it's not just being picked up by some, you know, people like you and I who might have grown up with the show. Well, not grown up, but like, you know, like really watched the show when we were much younger and anything we make would maybe be borderline fan fiction. Like someone who was originally there can have have a say in how it goes, which is good. Absolutely. And uh, as you said, it might be an entirely different cast of characters, different clones in this new reboot. And at the very least, even if they do feature some of the old characters, I would dare say that Gandhi is going to be dropped as a character, or at least very much uh, uh, defocused as a character in this new reboot. Uh, and I... Part of what reinforces my thinking of that is in the press release, there was a little snippet of a screen grab that HBO included to say that uh, there's a two-season order of Clone High. And in the snippet of the screen grab, there was Abe, there was JFK, there was Cleopatra, there was Joan of Arc. And I believe in the episode they pulled it from, that screen grab from, Gandhi was actually in the bottom left corner of the frame, but they cropped out Gandhi for the purpose of the image on this press release. Yeah, so like one of the big problems with Clone High originally, and I think it was one of the main things that got it canceled as a series, was the outcry, you know, um, in certain parts of the world over the depiction of Gandhi, who is kind of like a celebrated figure in India. So, like, I don't think it was a disrespectful depiction of Gandhi necessarily, but, you know, how Gandhi was depicted in the show was basically a hyperactive teenager who was like really interested in just, you know, all the things that hyperactive teenagers of the time were interested in and also really interested in girls and stuff, you know, because that's, again, there has to be a guy like that on a teen drama, but they made Gandhi that guy, which, you know, for, for the funny, um, um, just the, the funny characterization that, that, came with it but obviously like you you can't basically take a uh, a very super revered character in all parts of the world and you know take the piss out of him because you're going to get a lot of people mad and that sort of was enough to make MTV at the time um kind of like back down and go uh eh, maybe maybe we should retool this or maybe pull it back a bit Yes, although I mean the characterization of Gandhi in, was in keeping and in fitting with the uh, the rest of the theme in the show. Uh, it was a parody characterization, and yeah. I mean we've seen Gandhi uh, parodied as a character before. I cite the example of UHF. Yep, 
the Weird Al movie where we saw the uh, faux trailer for Gandhi 2. Yep. <laughs> which, if you've never looked it up, look it up once you're done listening to this program. It is a hilarious trailer. And, I mean, that depiction of Gandhi in that faux trailer took the piss out of the actual real-life Gandhi 2. Yep. So, uh, I, I think part of, uh, why the Gandhi depiction, uh, was, uh, drew the ire did, and, and I can understand, is because it's recent history. Yeah. You know, there, there will be people in India who were there during the, the time of Gandhi's fight for independence for the, for the country of India from British rule. Yeah. Yeah. He's not a, you know, from a hundred years ago, 200 years, years ago, like a, like an Abe Lincoln or Joan of Arc or Cleopatra. So, um, that perhaps I can see, but, uh, you know, they'll, I'm sure they will find a way to fill that, uh, uh, that comedy or comic relief role that Gandhi provided too, uh, in this new version of Clone High. I'm looking forward to it. And the fact it's on HBO Max, which is a digital subscription service, means they probably have free reign to do whatever the hell they want. Yeah. Like, even if it was just on normal broadcast HBO, you're given a lot of leeway. But HBO Max is the digital subscription service in America. I don't believe we have it here in Canada. Would be awesome if we did. There's a lot of good content that appears to be on it, but there's always ways around that. So, Well, I, I, I think anything on HBO will be available through Crave. True, too. True, too. So, uh, even so, uh, I mean, HBO Max, you can do whatever you want on there. Probably even more so than you could on broadcast HBO. So, yeah, the current timeline for this new run of Clone High episodes is that they are set to start sometime in 2022. Uh, you know, we'll keep an eye on that as things progress and update you. Once we have more firm details, a more firm uh, release date, hell, even I'm sure we'll talk about the first trailers for the new Clone High or even any sort of casting details because Clone High actually had a really great voice cast. Yeah, like really, really great, solid voice cast. Like Will Forte, um, a few people from Mad TV. And yeah, like lots of people were on that show. Like it was surprising. And then like just the, the guest stars that they would get as well. Like they had Marilyn Manson in an episode. They had John Stamos, um, among other people, of course. I wonder if uh, Phil Lord and Chris Miller will uh, return to at least do their voice roles again in this new Clone High, because the two of them uh, did the roles of uh, Principal Scudworth and Butler Tron. Yeah. I mean, that, yeah, that's a good, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, one of the interesting things that, you know, it, it took me a while to realize, you know, after, you know, the, the first time I noticed Phil Lord and Christopher Miller's name attached to movies, like I didn't realize like it was the same guys until I watched the Lego movie and then went, wait a minute, wait, Phil Lord and Christopher Miller, like clone high Phil Lord and Christopher Miller. Then I remember looking back, I'm like, holy crap, they've, they're basically like Hollywood, like darlings now, like making tons of movies. I'm like, oh, that's why these movies are so funny and good because they're written by the clone high guys. Oh, so it's, it's kind of, you know, to me, it's like kind of like a, like a like not a redemption tale, but like you know, good to see people who deserve like talented people, you know, get what they deserve. 
Yes, their talents be rewarded. Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually speak of, of, uh, Lego movie. I'm not sure if you caught it in there, but, uh, in one of the scenes where, um, uh, Chris Pat's, uh, uh, character is kind of in front of all the master builders and whatnot. And they're all, you know, the various character, Lego characters from different, uh, series or whatnot. Uh, in there is a Lego version of Abraham Lincoln. And that one was voiced by Will Forte, who did Abe Lincoln on Clone High. Yes. I did notice that. <laughs> so uh, we have high hopes for this new version of Clone High. Uh, if you're listening to this program, there's a good chance you are familiar with Clone High. And if you aren't, uh, take our word for it. It is an enjoyable series, very much of the late 90s, early 2000s, but still some really snappy, some good writing, ridiculous writing, uh, but worth your time. Uh, check it out, Clone High, however you can. I'm sure you can find the series on YouTube. Um, Oh God, it's been out of print on DVD for God knows how long, but, uh, yes, it, it is actually all available on YouTube. I mean, whether or not that'll change once, you know, the, the new series goes into production on HBO Max, but for now, it's pretty easy to find full episodes of Clone High on YouTube. So I would definitely recommend searching those out because, uh, yeah. It's a fun show still. Uh, binge that, and even if you can't, at least binge the Raisin the Stakes episode. Uh, ridiculous rock opera, uh, set in the, you know, set during a, you know, teenage melodrama. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, let's yes, move with, on to our second leader yes. stuff. Sorry, you were gonna say? Just gonna say with Jack Black as, you know, the guest star in that episode. Lots of good guest stars in the original series. Oh yeah, absolutely. So worth your time. Uh, but we'll move on to our second ludicrous lead off uh, because we could keep talking about Clone High for a while. Uh, but yeah. we'll get to this one. This second ludicrous lead off ties into, as I said, uh, something we spoke about a couple weeks ago here on this program, Pokemon cards selling for crazy amounts of money. Uh, there was the Charizard card that went for a lot of money. There was the unsealed or the uh, not or the still sealed the unopened box of pokemon cards from the original run that were still uh that sold for a lot of money there was the super rare test print of a uh, blastoise card that uh sold for a crazy amount of money so pokemon cards seem to be the new hotness in terms of uh people trying to think they can get rich quick yeah but i i think the caveat with those pokemon cards that have been going for a lot of money is that they are Original, original print from back in the day, 25-ish year old cards. That's what makes them expensive. And that's what, you know, people are kind of gravitating towards. Those are the expensive cards currently. Not every single Pokemon card is expensive, but those cards are the expensive ones. They are. And that key aspect of the, uh, the fortunes that these cards are, are fetching seems to be lost on a lot of people south of the border because McDonald's stores in America land, the United States of America land, uh, have been running up a, a promotion in concert with Pokemon, the Pokemon company, as this is the 25th anniversary, uh, this year marks the 25th anniversary of Pokemon. So, uh, the Pokemon company, has a lot of promotions going on. We'll speak about a ridiculous one later on in this program. But the one they are running in conjunction with McDonald's is that if you buy a Happy Meal, you can, uh, in there is a pack of Pokemon cards. I believe you get a, you get four cards in a package and there's in total 50 different cards to collect. So apparently this series has all 24 starter Pokemon in the, you know, that there have been. Plus there's 
Pikachu and everything is available in its standard form as well as a foil version. So yeah. you can imagine people are really wanting to try and get their hands on the foil cards because the foil cards are the collectible rare ones that will fetch yeah. a lot of money. Yeah, exactly. Eventually, when they become collector's items, if they become collector's items, I'm just going to keep stressing this fact. Yeah, this is a kind of uh, widespread promotion across the United States. So it's not as though there's just a single card uh, that is stated as having only six in circulation and it's a golden ticket, you know, that gets you access to Wonka's factory or anything. No, these are probably pretty widespread, massively produced cards. And the unfortunate thing is um, people are losing their goddamn minds over this and buying up as much as they possibly can from McDonald's stores in their areas. Yeah. So some stores are being cleared out. Uh, some stores are apparently having people show up at 5 a.m. to buy the cards. I believe McDonald's, as a corporation, is uh, suggesting restrictions that their individual stores impose, though apparently it's up to the individual stores themselves. Uh, some, some of these uh, boxes of Pokemon cards that people have just outright been buying, if not, you know, know someone on the inside and you're buying them out the back door, are selling on eBay for upwards of $1,500, which is just stupid. Yeah. Like, they're, they're, oh, sorry, I think we should probably say they're trying to sell them for $1,500. Yes, that's the listed asking price, which, of course, uh, you can list and ask for whatever price you want on eBay. Will somebody pay it? That's a different story. Yeah, I, I think... The missing part here is kind of like, this is a hundred percent artificial demand. This is, this is kind of like what happened, like the toilet paper shortage that happened at the start of the pandemic. You remember there actually wasn't a shortage. The shortage was legitimately only caused by people buying things with the intention of trying to sell them for a way higher price after. And when, you know, Average people were having none of it going, well, that's stupid. I'm not doing that. It fizzled out. I suspect a similar thing will happen here as well. Or what will happen is that there will be, there will be scal scalpers that have bought a whole crap ton of these cards, try to sell them, realize no one wants them, and then we'll probably end up seeing the market flooded with super cheap cards anyways. Which would then further drive down the prices on these cards. Yeah, because you, you bought things hoping to create a shortage when no one, no one bit, then you kind of gave up and decided I gotta get some of this money back. So, you know, yeah, anyways, it's, it's funny that, you know, the, the expensive Pokemon card thing has gotten to so many people in such a weird way that anytime they see any related, anything related to Pokemon cards, they're just assuming that they're gonna catch, you know, a crazy price. But as we know, that's not the case. That's like, that's like all of a sudden, like, you know, a couple of like Wayne Gretzky or whatever rookie cards going out and fetching like a large price. And then all of a sudden people going bananas trying to buy hockey cards. It's like, no, hockey cards themselves are not going to be expensive for no reason. Like just because a couple of like rookie cards that, you know, for valuable, like old players or something like went for large prices. No. That's not how prices of things work. <laughs> but in the mania that is caused in the moment, some people lose their mind and can't see, uh, can't see that reality, can't see that truth, even though 
it should be apparent. Yeah, it should be. But, you know, common sense is not necessarily super common. Yes, common self, common sense itself is actually a rare commodity. And so that is causing the price of uh, common sense to be driven up as well. It's a rare collectible thing. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> so this unfortunately is happening in the States and I, again, I read this story, I came across it and my, my initial reaction was, yay, this is, this is why we can't have nice things. Yeah. Like people just lose their goddamn minds and start, bu- start buying up Happy Meal, you know, Happy Meals just for Pokemon cards. Now some people are buying up shit tons of Happy Meals and donating the foods and they just want the cards. Some people are going around just trying to buy the cards. Some people are then turning turning this into an attempt at YouTube fame and YouTube stardom with, hey, I went and I bought, you know, 10 Happy Meals uh, to get the Pokemon cards, but here, watch me as I try and eat 10 Happy Meals worth of food. Yeah, like that mukbang craze or whatever they call it. Yes, which is, I don't understand and seems incredibly wasteful, but again, I'm an old man. Yeah. Seems like an eating disorder to me, but, uh, yes, same boat. So, uh, it's happening in America land. Thankfully, it has, uh, not come to Canada yet. Uh, I don't know if it will, uh, but, uh, we'll see. So this is what's happening. So if, uh, you're out there in the market for, for Pokemon cards, be advised that, uh, these will be flooding the market pretty damn soon. Yeah. But let's move out of there into our regular news of the week. And actually this still, this first kind of story ties in with, uh, something we spo- have spoken about the past couple weeks and also the fact that it was a story we spoke about on our first year in review program. It's been a bad past couple months for CD Project Red. Yeah, to, to put it very lightly, um, you know, the botched release of Cyberpunk 2077, um, basically class action lawsuits popping up with people claiming false advertising. There's the game being pulled from the PlayStation store because of, you know, it actually not meeting standards and of being able to run on the PlayStation four, you know, generally not good stuff all around for, you know, them as a company, very angry shareholders, um, et cetera. But now it just seems like there's just been, you know, just a little bit of icing, a little bit of extra icing put onto this like really unfortunate cake. <laughs> Um, in the last, you know, week or so that's happened to them. And, um, I, I can't help but like feel a little bit of Schadenfreude because it's like, you know, as, you know, as a, uh, as an organization that, you know, is technical, you know, you'd, you'd think that they would have some, you know, pretty good systems in place on their IT people and stuff to basically have certain things under control, like, you know, data backups, you know, security training for various people and whatnot to kind of prevent it. But no, it seems CD project red has succumbed to a targeted cyber attack with, you know, which has compromised some of their internal systems. That's all they said in a press release. They didn't get too specific with, you know, what the degree of the damage or anything like that, but we do know that um, they were hit, and it's not good. And the uh, the 
actor or actors engaging in this cyber attack who penetrated into CD Projekt Red systems uh, claim to have gotten into uh, HR, you know, uh, documentation and files, uh, have gotten into accounting files, things of that nature. But the real, uh, the meat and potatoes of what they got in and apparently took were the source codes for one of the servers that was home to uh, uh, Cyberpunk 2077, Witcher 3, Gwent, and apparently an unreleased version of Witcher 3. And in the note that, strangely, CD Projekt Red released and published the note that the uh, the penetrators included in their attack, or left somewhere in the digital systems of CD Projekt Red, they released it for review, and basically it was a ransom note saying, pay us, you know... However much, possibly in Bitcoin, and or we will, you know, release this. And there have been reports, of course, unverified because this is in starting to involve the dark web and very seedy, sketchy corners of the internet. But there are reports that there was an auction put up for the source code to these projects that were stolen from CD Projekt Red, and the auction was uh, then ended because the uh, the actors involved the the nefarious people received a uh, an offer that was to their liking and enough a high enough amount that uh, they will not allow and basically prevent further release of this stolen source code for these projects yeah now, again those reports are unverified because how how do you verify criminal activity well yeah exactly you know, especially on the dark web where it's like going through a uh like a Tor router where good luck tracking that down. Yeah. So uh, now I'm, I'd imagine a lot of these systems have been backed up and were saved elsewhere on other servers and other means for CD project red, but uh, not good. Just really not good. Yeah. Now as a, uh, as someone in the development community who's spent uh, a, a good portion of your working life uh, in the uh I guess, computer, well, coding and development community, does it still shock you and surprise you when these sorts of attacks happen and can happen? It doesn't because, I mean, unless like an organization takes very proactive measures and, you know, puts people through rigorous security training, you know, it's like hackers and people who do targeted like phishing scams and stuff, they, they're very good at it. Like, they get more and more um, clever by the day. I mean, sometimes, you know, they cast a very broad net and, you know, go a little bit too hard. And like, sometimes ridiculous things happen where they try to like, they find the name of like the president of the company. And then they send a message to everyone saying, you know, like, Oh, um, you know, like something ridiculous, like, Oh, uh, email me. It's like, we need to meet right away or, you know, uh, I need to give you a call right away, blah, blah, blah. We have to talk. And then, you know, if depending on how big the company is, like I would imagine that it's very conceivable that a company the size of CD Projekt Red, there are probably people who have never talked to the president before who might not really know what they sound like or not know what their phone number is. So, you know, if they're, you know, if, if they're in a position where they're like, oh, crap, like I got to talk to someone about this. Or if they say something general enough, it might just be like, oh, this sounds important. I better you know, give them the information they need. You never know what information you give out can be used in what way. So it, it makes sense that something like this might happen. It's unfortunate, but yeah, like security is very important and I can't help, but, you know, like 
but well, there's, there's the part of me that thinks though, that given how much crunch generally their developers are under just for main project work, that probably leaves very little time for anything but, you know, main development. So they're likely not going to solve that problem anytime soon. Uh, no, uh, unlikely. And this is just, uh, this is another headache that, uh, the, the people of CD project red have to deal with. Um, imagine being one of the developers who's basically been under crunch for at probably the last year, at least to crank out cyberpunk 2077, the game coming out, the console version being just having the problems it has, um, you know, probably put under further crunch to bang out some patches and fixes to at least get things workable. And then this happens. So it's, it's a never ending monsoon of uh, a shitstorm for the poor people working at CD project red. Yeah. Now I'm sure this is, uh, uh, the, the reception that C- cyberpunk 2077 had and uh, the terrible console versions Maybe played into this. Maybe it uh, made the nefarious actors and uh, hackers out there look at CD Projekt Red as uh, basically an easy target. That maybe they won't be focusing on their security systems. And yeah, we can sneak in and have no problem. Yeah, the the thing that kind of I'm I'm curious. Like I'm always curious about what's going to come of this, though. Like, are we going to see some, you know, like what their I'm I'm not sure what their plan here is. Like. The people who take the source code, like, yeah, now they have access to Red Engine. Great. Are you going to make a game with Red Engine and release it? And when you release it, call it a different engine? I mean, people are probably going to start analyzing the game pretty heavily. And then the second that, you know, you discover, hey, this game was made with a stolen copy of Red Engine, it's going to get shut down real fast. And there's probably going to be a lawsuit involved somewhere. And then there's going to be crazy questioning of like, how did, how did you get access to this source code? And there's going to be ways of proving that you know it's the same code. Like, are you going to rewrite the engine just, or just see how the engine works and just, you know, like there, I'm sure there's aspects to what CD project read, what they did that is going to be distinctive enough that you can kind of say, okay, this clearly came from here. Like, I don't know. Yeah, even in in broad strokes, how usable is the source code for these projects like Cyberpunk, Witcher, and whatnot that was stolen? How viable and usable is that to someone outside the company? Yeah, I mean, other than like as a learning experience or a learning aid, I guess. That could, like, unless they, I'm I'm sure there are like interesting, innovative things that they did in there, but a game of that size and scale that took like a team of 200 plus people to work on over the course of like seven years for the example of cyberpunk. If you're just a small team of hackers or whatever, you're going to have your work cut out for you going through a code base of that size. Oh, it's going to be ridiculously daunting. Yeah. The only thing I can see is that it ultimately gets dumped on the web, but I mean, if uh, the reports are accurate that whoever bought the source code uh, off the dark web from these nefarious hackers, uh, inc- you know, had a stipulation that it's not to be released further, then the source code isn't going to pop up in some data dump on like mega dot whatever, you know, in some, you know, depository for files. It's It's going to stay basically off the grid. So, so then what? Yeah. 
Well, so exactly. This is this is just. I mean, it's bad news. Could be worse, but still, just it paints CD Projekt Red in an, just an even worse light. Yeah. And it, it, it's it's just been a just a, a shitty light that they've been under for the past several weeks already. This is not going to help things. So, I mean, the the poor you know you know Joe Lunchpails and Jill Lunchpails and Hammondeggers doing the grunt work to try and make Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven work again and work in the first place. Um, this is more stress and hassle and headache that they don't need. Well, exactly. So our thoughts to the common people working. Management, eh, not so much. They can take a long walk off a short bridge. Yeah, pretty much. But uh, let's move on to some other reported news this week. Uh, with COVID and all the events of last year, uh, we spoke about one of the notable events on the Summer Games calendar being canceled, that being E3 2020. That was canceled. But E3 2020, even prior to the COVID-related cancellation, was having some issues and troubles. And it seemed like uh, there was some uh, questions about what really should the focus and direction for E3 be in this new modern gaming landscape. And a report out this week, as reported on by Andy Robinson of VideoGamesChronicle.com, who apparently has seen some documentation that the ESA is passing around, shed some light on what maybe this year's E3 will look like. And it's currently looking like, looking like it's going to be an uh, all-virtual event over the span of three days in June. And it looks like it would just be very long live streams of whatever during the course of those days from about 10 a.m. to, you know, 10 p.m., almost telethon-like streams of never-ending game content, this, that, and the other thing. Um, and there would be some keynote sessions. There would be an award show. There'd be a preview night. There'd be some other, you know, side streams from influencers and media partners and whatnot. And, um, taking a bit of approach, but still trying to be that one monolithic type event on the Summer Games calendar. And it sounds like Jeff Keighley won't be involved again, as he's apparently still going to do his Summer Games Fest, which he up took, uh, took up last year in the absence of E3. And I'm kind of wondering, just in your general thoughts, would these broad outlay of unconfirmed plans. I mean, nothing's been officially announced by the ESA, who are the Entertainment Software Association. They are the member organization that puts on the E3 event every year and also does advocacy work for the games industry and developers and whatnot, lobbying of politicians. They're the ones who put on E3 and book the event and venue and such. Um, would this sort of virtual event uh be enough to move E3 back into the direction of being a uh, a staple an influential event uh and regain some of its uh, former glory I I mean I don't know like the has Jeff Keighley kind of wrecked it for them well I'm kind of wondering because he had a, a longer, I think it was like a two week worth event of Summer Games Fest last year, where, of course, he has a lot of industry contacts and a lot of uh, partnerships. So he had streams and people would come announce games and stuff during his Summer Games Fest. That kind of seems like it steals the thunder of E3, doesn't it? Like, it sure does. It now becomes the de facto E3 event. So then what's the point of E3 if we've already got this event that established itself last year as a full streaming event for multiple days? 
and isn't trying to be just one monolithic event that exists during one specific point in time. It's kind of spread out, makes it a bit more easier to consume, spreads out the news instead of just creating a cacophony of noise and sound. Um, wouldn't that be a better experience for companies and, and developers and publishers wanting to get news out about their games? Yeah. I think the other thing, though, too, is that I think given... I mean, Nintendo started the whole trend way before everyone else with, you know, having their own Nintendo Directs. And especially in this time of everyone just kind of being at home and, you know, all that type of thing, like, they're probably seeing the value in, like, hey, why don't we just have our own thing? Like, how hard can it really be to actually set up, you know, a streaming event? Like, you don't really require, you know, the big giant, you know, um, event spaces anymore. Like you can literally do it in a room. All you need is a few people hire, you know, a celebrity to do it over zoom or whatever. And then, you know, that, that could just be it. I mean, that's like, honestly, like even, even if Jeff Keeley isn't the catalyst for what could be the end of E3 or, you know, the, the end of the, um, importance of E3, maybe, maybe just the fact that like people realized like, Hey, we, we can do this ourselves and it's, it's fine. Like, you know, the, as long as, you know, we just send out pressers to the appropriate people to kind of follow along and like do things like there's no reason why everyone can't have their own time to shine on the internet either, right? Like, right. is there any real benefit to just being a part of something that everyone, you know, is being squished into? I, I mean, I wouldn't think so. And this is uh, one of the uh, downsides to E3. As big and massive an event as E3 grew to be in its heyday, I mean, the past several years have been a scaled or were a scaled down event for E3 in the physical space that is the LA Convention Center. But in its heyday, it was just sensory overload of every booth being filled with a, a developer, a publisher, someone hawking some kind of wear, trying to get people hyped about their product, their game, and get noise and or get some traction and get some attention for it, some media coverage for it. But you've got a thousand other companies there all trying to do the same thing. It's very easy to get lost in the noise. Now, to to a viewer, to a game fan, yeah, that that all that noise is kind of exciting. But if you're there as a company trying to get some eyeballs and get some attention for what you're trying to sell, uh, get some publicity, it seems like it's an impossible event to try and win at unless you're already one of the big companies. Yeah. And the importance of E3, even just as like a physical gathering point for people in the industry, fans of games and whatnot, um, has been reduced even prior to COVID. I mean, becoming a, a, you know, a terrible pandemic in the Western world and just shutting down any sense of travel, uh, for the foreseeable future, uh, with the advent of things like PAX, the Penny Arcade Expos in Seattle, in Austin, Texas, in Boston, hell, even Australia, uh, MAGFest being in a, you know, an event that gets thousands of people or did get thousands of people, um, just a lot of other events cropping up and becoming popular as draws for people there to celebrate and revel in games in the game industry that was already taking the luster away from E3 as the event to draw people for that reason. Yeah. I mean, E3 still was kind of the Super Bowl because it would have the big names. That's where the big announcements would be. But we've seen, I mean, 
with uh, prior to the launch of the PS5, Sony did a big long live stream event where they just kind of showed off everything. Microsoft did the same thing. Nintendo does their infomercials that pop up every so often. So this is the new reality. Um, I, I, time will have, uh, it's certainly at this moment looks like time will have passed E3 by pretty quickly. Like it was going there and then just, uh, kind of zoomed by it all at once. Yeah. So uh, you can read the full report. We have a link to the article by uh, Andy Robinson on our homepage of the arcadeshow.com. Check out the show notes for this episode. Uh, we link to his writings or their writings on videogameschronicle.com. So it's interesting. Uh, and certainly we want to hear your thoughts on it uh, of E3 and its importance. You can always uh, get in touch with us through social media. We're at the arcade show and email us info at the arcade show.com. Uh, but another piece of gaming business to talk about here. Uh, when I read this, it kind of reminded me and made me think that, huh, he is uh, kind of taking a page from my playbook and seemed to be, uh, uh, you know, shopping while drunk. Um, <laughs> do you still do that? Oh, God, no. <laughs> Just for, for context of a listener, it's a thing that Mike the Legend used to do about, what, 10 years ago? Yeah, 10, 12-ish years ago would be a thing of, uh, you know... <laughs> You just kind of, you know, relaxing. If you've got some downtime, you just, you know, hop on your computer and just, uh, you maybe got some, uh, beverages there, uh, and, uh, you know, the night takes its course and, uh, you end up buying things, uh, off eBay with the buy it now button. And it's so great because you just like don't have to go through the auction side and you, you just get it. And it's like so much better. You just get it. You don't have to like fight for it or like go back and forth through the auction stuff. You just like, like, and it comes to you eventually. It's like so great. And then like that night is done and then you kind of forget you even bought anything. And then when the item you ordered actually comes in the mail, it's like Christmas because you totally forgot you even ordered it because you, you were having a good time. Yeah. So that's the thing that happened. And, uh, yeah, thankfully it doesn't happen anymore. My wallet and my liver thank me for ceasing those actions. <laughs> Oh uh, yes, but uh, you know what happened? I uh, I can't deny it. I, I I it was fun while I was in it, and then looking back, it's like, hey, you know, maybe that wasn't the best course of action to take, but whatever. But at least in your defense, you didn't waste like too much money doing it. It was always like just DVDs and like you know, basically what amounted to like smaller trinkets and things. Like it was never anything that like put you in the poor house or anything like that. No, absolutely not. I, I certainly knew what my limits were and I would never spend ostentatiously. Even sober, I don't spend ostentatiously. So I will say no. that. Uh, but I mean, the worst, worst that happened is I think I ended up with a hoodie one time or, uh, that I couldn't actually use or wear because the head hole ended up being too small. Yeah. <laughs> so things like that are like things I maybe didn't really want, the opinion change, whatever the course. It'd be, you know, smaller amounts of money uh, compared to the big industrial amounts of money that elect Electronic Arts enjoys parting with now. We spoke, I think, a week or two ago about the fact that uh, they had officially acquired Codemasters to the tune of around a billion dollars. Uh, I think a billion, if not 1.2 billion. That was just so they could have all the racing under one roof, and now EA, um, having a really good night, uh, they have decided to buy Glue Mobile for, uh, for the princely sum of $2.1 billion. Yeah, so, uh, in case you're wondering who the hell's Glue Mobile, they're uh, a mobile development studio, obviously, with a, um, 
a few franchises under their belt that they've they've been responsible for. Diner Dash, the Disney Sorcerer Arena, WWE Universe, Tap Sports Baseball 20, Kim Kardashian's Hollywood, Deer Hunter, and, you know, among others. Yes. But those are like the big ones. Yes. I think Deer Hunter is probably something in the vein of Big Buck Hunter. Although when I came across the story and initially read the title Deer Hunter in there, I thought, what, the Christopher Walken movie? <laughs> From the 80s? Yes. <laughs> it's just all intense Russian roulette every round. Sorry, from the late 70s, I should say. Yes. Uh, so EA has stated that their reasoning for acquiring, acquiring Glue Mobile uh, uh, is to include growing their mobile games portfolio into sports, RPG, lifestyle, casual, and quote-unquote mid-core games. And as part of this deal, Glue Mobile is getting access to EA's global licensing and distribution capabilities. Uh, Glue Mobile's experience is in monetizing sports and casual games will also apparently be a point of interest for electronic arts. So... There's that, but this actually is kind of crazy that it's a it's a mobile development studio with you know silly casual games that may have some or probably have some element of microtransactions to them. But two point one billion dollars is nothing to sneeze at, considering this stands as like one of the more expensive gaming studio acquisitions made really ever. Of all, yeah, of all time, really. Um, yeah, like we have seen some bigger numbers recently, but. Yeah, according to uh, Joseph Noop on IGN.com, he kind of runs down um, where this kind of stands. Like the only well, – where it stands in terms of like the pantheon of huge acquisitions really um, – and there's not too many above it, this one. I mean so like in terms of like money that went around, uh, Tencent acquired Clash Royale developer Supercell for $8.6 billion, which I think is the most expensive of all time. Uh, following that, Microsoft acquiring ZeniMax Media, who's the parent company to Bethesda, ID Software, Arcana Machine Games, uh, among others, uh, back last year for $7.5 billion, which is, you know, number two. Then Activision acquiring, uh, King, who is the developer of Candy Crush for $5.9 billion back in 2016 is the third most. And Microsoft acquiring Minecraft developer Mojang back in 2014 for 2.5 billion is the fourth. So I think this puts the, as what, the fifth most expensive acquisition of all time? Yeah. And just behind this on the uh, list of gaming acquisitions, like big expensive gaming acquisitions, there's Facebook buying out Oculus for 2 billion, uh, Zynga acquiring Peak for 1.8, and then also Bandai's acquisition of Namco. And this isn't the first time EA has dipped its toe into the uh, casual slash mobile uh, devel development acquisition side of things. They bought uh, PopCap Games, the ones behind uh, Plants vs. Zombies, for the still tidy sum of $750 million, that coming back in 2012. So, yeah, um, EA having just a really ripping night, and uh, they're like, well, you know what? I like this game on my phone. I'm just going to buy them. And then everyone around the president was like, oh, you're just going to buy more stuff in the game? It's like, no, I'm just going to buy the company. I'm just going to do that. And they were like, all right. Well, we can't talk him out of it. He's uh, had his medicine, so. Yes, he's he's drunk on alcohol and power. <laughs> <laughs> Which is always a winning combination, kids. <laughs> yes. 
So this uh, acquisition of EA or EA's acquisition of Blue Mobile is apparently uh, slated to come to fruition and be finalized by the end of June, uh, given all the regulatory hurdles, legal paperwork, yada, 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 you know, actual bank drafts being drawn up and then transferred and then going into people's accounts, you know, once the money clears kind of thing. Because, you know, you actually want the money to change hands before you start signing over your company, so... Just yeah. start, just want to make sure EA is good for that two point one billion. <laughs> uh, but one more, one last story we'll get to here on this week. Uh, I touched on uh, the fact that this year is the twenty fifth anniversary of Pokemon, and I mentioned during that story about the the stampede and the craze of Pokemon cards at McDonald's locations. The fact that uh, the Pokemon company is doing various things to mark the anniversary that is the twenty fifth year for Pokemon. Basically, coming, at being released, and gaining ridiculous popularity. And so, uh, they've signed a deal to have Katy Perry involved in some way, shape, or form. You know, big, you know, recent pop star. Well, 10, 15 years of being yeah, you, a pop you, star. You say recent pop star, but they're not recent pop stars. <laughs> I know. It's, uh, I mean, time is a flat circle, so. Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> So, uh, but yes, Katy Perry will be involved somehow. And during that press release that heralded Katy Perry's involvement with uh, the Pokemon anniversary, it said there'd be other musical events and musical acts uh, participating in the Pokemon anniversary. And now we have another one announced with a bit more detail to it. And this one makes even less sense than Katy Perry being involved with the Pokemon company. Yeah. Um, now I'll just let you take it because I don't really know how to. <laughs> Be clever about talking about this. So the press release came out and said that on Pokemon Day, which is February 27th, uh, viewers, fans, and, and Pokemon enthusiasts alike will be able to tune in starting at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to enjoy a virtual concert being put on by Post Malone. Did they hire him just because his name very loosely sounds like Pokemon? Uh, maybe? Like Pokemon Post Malone? Malone? I, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with that. But um, normally when you look at Post Malone, is the first thing you think of Pokemon? No. Do you want to know what the first thing I think of when I look at Post Malone? It's is it someone that is maybe lacking a place to live? Well, I was going to say meth, but sure. <laughs> That as well, yes. Yes. Uh, po Post Malone, not exactly a poster child for Pokemon, Pokemon fans, the Pokemon 25th anniversary, but does have a blurb in the press release that says, quote, I've been a Pokemon fan for a long time, so the opportunity to headline the, headline the Pokemon Day concert celebrating 25 years is awesome. End quote. I mean, again, like Katy Perry being our age and being someone that probably did genuinely have Pokemon for Game Boy back in the day, it wouldn't surprise me if Post Malone is actually a longtime fan of Pokemon as well. He is a younger person, younger, like he would have grown up with Pokemon being in the ether, being around, so. Probably had it for the Game Boy Advance at the very least. Yeah. Or maybe had an older sibling that had it. I'm not sure what his situation is, but yeah, um, it doesn't surprise me, like, it doesn't seem disingenuous that he would say he is a longtime fan of Pokemon and doesn't seem unbelievable or anything. It's not like Paul, Mac like them hiring someone like Paul McCartney or some old out of touch musician being like, oh, I love those Pokemons. Like, you know, like, I don't know. 
Yeah, yes, the Rolling Stones uh, will be doing their Pokemon <laughs> anniversary concert later on. Yes. They'll come later in the year. They'll do it uh, in front of uh, 100,000 people on the beach in uh, Rio de Janeiro. <laughs> yes. And, oh, man. And uh, nothing will scream uh, Pokemon 25th anniversary more than that. But, I mean, I, I sure, but Pokemon, but Post Malone, uh, I mean, looks like someone that might kind of scare off the younger fans of Pokemon. Or not, because that's what they're listening to music-wise. Also true. Like, he is very popular. I'm just going to put that out there. I will take your word for it. I, I'm, I, I would have to believe the reality that he is a very popular musical artist, given the fact that the Pokemon company cut a deal with him to be in this virtual Pokemon Day concert. Yeah. So, yeah, like, they know what they're doing and he is popular, but yeah, <laughs> as, as someone, you know, that maybe is, I don't think anyone's too old to listen to anyone, but he's, definitely wasn't popular when we were growing up so he's he's one of the newer pop stars to us and um yeah let's just say i mean i don't want to also unfairly stereotype people based on looks but he doesn't look like someone who would fit the image of someone that likes pokemon that's all i'm gonna say uh correct would not be the uh pokemon uh fandom in post malone would not be the first thing i i see when i look at post malone no so there is that, but uh, uh, hopefully puts on a great concert and everyone enjoys it. Uh, my understanding from the trailer, uh, just the brief 30, 45 second uh, announcement video that was put out alongside this press release, makes it look like it's going to be a digitized version of Post Malone doing this concert. Uh, basically, uh, an animated form of Post Malone as a Pokemon trainer. So we shall... See how that all plays out. But again, Pokemon Day is February 27th, and this concert will start at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can watch it on the Pokemon YouTube channel and also their Twitch channel. In addition to the official 25th anniversary website, uh, we have links to uh, some of those, again, on our homepage, thearcadeshow.com. But, you know, we... we, we we're, we're old people. We, uh, we remember Pokemon coming out. We have been around, uh, and we're also old people that we don't really know Post Malone or listen to too much of his musical efforts. Yes. But this actually nicely transitions and segues into our blast from the past, which is the portion of the show where we take some time to to fet things celebrating milestone anniversaries. They can be movies, TV shows, games, albums. Uh, and we actually have a surprise item as the blast from the past this week, because it was on February 10th, back in 2006, that the world welcomed into its sweet, warm bosom, the arcade. Yes. Yes. We are the blast from the past this week. <laughs> well, not yeah. we. How is that for the show is. Yeah, the show is. We're still around. We're still doing this. It's not like we're coming to you from, you know, beyond the grave or something morbid or crazy like that. But no, this show has been going long enough that, you know, I think we can constitute ourselves the blast from the past. Yes. Uh, we, I think we joked earlier this year that uh, the arcade was now officially in its third decade of uh, being a program that was uh, produced and being put out there. And uh, yeah, that's because it's 15 years old, started in 2006. 
And if you're kind of, you know, more new to the program, uh, aren't really familiar with the story of the arcade, that's okay, because we don't really talk about the, you know, the history, the origins. We're just kind of a show that kind of gets into it, go with the flow, and that's what we do. We have rarely celebrated anniversaries on this program. Yeah. Like, the- I, I think we kind of, we, we might have just mentioned the 10-year anniversary, and that was kind of it. Yeah, I think it kind of crept up on us, and we didn't quite realize it and had nothing prepared for it. And similarly, we have nothing prepared for this. <laughs> yes. So that part hasn't changed. Um <laughs> But yeah, uh, we weren't always a podcast when we first started off. In fact, it took me a couple of months to actually get onto the show. Uh, not because there was like any sort of like, you know, visa issues. We were, we were importing you from another country, so we had to get the work visa cleared. So. <laughs> no, nothing like that. It was just this, this, when this program started, we were actually on terrestrial radio for a radio station that's no longer broadcasting because they lost their license due to funny series of calamities that befell them. Um, but yeah, I, I, if I recall, it was a, well, I don't need to recall this. I, I know for a fact it was a, a radio station for one of the local educational facilities. It was a college. I'm not going to bother mentioning the college. We don't want to give them any free, um, space time or anything like that. But I, I believe you got the show. It was mostly because you were connected with their, like their communications program. Correct. And it sort of like started off with you and a couple of classmates. Uh, correct. So the, the TLDR is I was on a work placement in uh, my second year of the communications program. I was working at, I was sent to work at a uh, baseball team in January, which is the dead of winter, as we established off the top of this program, and I was kind of bored out of my skull. Yeah. There isn't much to do at a baseball team in January, uh, so I was just kind of sitting there. I had time to myself on a uh, on a computer, and so, you know, I had had the thought, you know, we hear sports talk so often as being a popular, like, radio program or or even genre of radio station. Hell, why isn't there, like, a video game radio show? So got to thinking about it and then was emailing back and forth with the station manager at the time, uh, a man by the name of Rick Baverstock, uh, who was a good man who sadly is no longer with us. Um, yeah, unfortunately. But was emailing back and forth with him. He liked the idea uh, when I pitched it to him and then, you know, gave me a bit of time of experience in the studio, learning the board and opping and whatnot, all the technical aspects. And lo and behold, Friday night, uh, December or Friday night, February, uh, 10th, 2006 at 7 PM is when the first arcade aired. I'd like to, at this point, play a snippet of that original show. We don't have a recording of it. No, because I was, uh, I was board opping and also hosting and being like the driving force of the show. And let me tell you, that's a lot to take on. And then also to remember to put on a CD in the card at that time too, and then hit record. Yeah. It's a, it's a lot to take on all at once. So. Yeah, so like whenever you hear, you know, a, a live radio program and you hear a person talking, there's at least two people normally behind the scenes doing stuff and like that you can't hear. And this is it's rarely, like it's rarely just one person just kind of running it themselves or like even even if there's two voices, like you're you're going to probably hear you know, them talking, but like when one person's not talking, the other person is probably doing stuff <laughs> behind the scenes, either like getting stuff, like, especially if it's a music based station, which we weren't, thankfully, um, 
or music based show, thankfully that we weren't, um, you know, they're queuing up things, queuing up ads, queuing up this, getting like things ready, like adjusting levels and, you know, managing various pieces of equipment and stuff. And there's a lot of work that goes into it, which, yeah. It's true. And I look back, I have CDs from, I think the earliest show I have, uh, from those early days is from May of 20, uh, May of 2007. So a couple months after you would have been on the show and, uh, you know, as you mentioned, you weren't initially on the program. It was myself, two other classmates, a fellow named Darren, a fellow named Dan. Uh, Darren only lasted a couple weeks simply because, uh, we were doing the program after school on a Friday and basically after uh, a week of school, you're tired. It, you're just kind of run down and then to wait around after school, kill time, do the show in the evening. It, it, it was a lot to ask. And also his situation required taking public transit, which became inconvenient after a certain hour in the day, because where we live in Winnipeg still does not have a good, uh, robust, uh, bus schedule or bus system. Yep. So that was his reason for dropping out. Totally understand. Uh, and Dan, uh, well, actually after Darren dropped out, I turned to you and asked if you'd be interested and you were, so then brought you in. And I think what did we, was it only one show that the me, you and Dan did as a trio? Yes, that's correct. And what ended up happening was you and I had a lot longer of a history because Mike, the legend and myself, we've been friends since grade three, which at this point is, well, currently is 29 years ago. <laughs> it's a long time. So. So at that point, like, you know, 29 minus 15, you do the math. It's still a long time. We've been friends for a long time. When people have, you know, long friendships and stuff, you have an already built in chemistry and you can kind of already, like we were, we could already, you know, play off each other and talk and stuff. And really, you know, there was, there was like a certain rhythm that we already had that he wasn't able to keep up with. And I mean, we were trying. I mean, he, it was just sort of like a thing where like, you know, I don't want to say like we're too quick or anything like that. It's just an established chemistry thing, you know, where we can talk. And I think what ended up happening was maybe we ended up talking over or like, you know, really kind of steamrolling him a bit. And he just kind of ended up fading away. And uh, he did. And I think perhaps he was able to acknowledge that uh, the chemistry just wouldn't fit with him in this already established, you know, duo of you and I, I mean, you and I can riff and keep on going and we can dominate a conversation without ever trying to. Yes. And, and the only time it really doesn't the only time it really will get broken up is if someone else who we've also known for a long time can jump in and kind of like also <laughs> be like that, like be it a sibling or another old friend from the long ago or whatever. But that's, you know, that's that, neither here nor there. That's a short list of people, by the way. Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> and so that's how the program was. And I think officially you joined and it became just the two of us uh in April of 2006, if I recall correctly. Yeah, that seems right. And it's been, uh, so the official form of the arcade didn't happen until April 2006. So maybe the official quote unquote 15th anniversary isn't until April of this year. But here we are now. The pro program in its first form debuted February 10th, 2006. And, uh, I recall one of our early stories, you know, when it was just the three of us before you came on was talking about the, uh, Nintendo just announcing the DS Lite. 
And yeah. we made the silly hackneyed jokes back then of like, oh, DS Lite, does that mean it's got less calories? <laughs> and talking about, uh, I think, Nintendo revealing Super Princess Peach for the DS as a game, which uh, was very, uh, with with Peach's emotions being a big game mechanic in that title as well. And, I mean, the form of the arcade has maintained more or less over the past 15 years. We've, you know, dropped segments. We used to do a code of the week that ultimately fell by the wayside. Uh, used to do, I think, a website of the week. That uh, fell by the wayside. So the Blast in the Past is the only segment of the show that is maintained all throughout. Yeah, it's, you know, because, well, really, it's a good discussion piece. It's a good way to cap off the show. Um, the code of the week was just kind of like, it got to a point where we're like, what are we doing? <laughs> it's like, we're just listing off button combinations. No one's going to use this as a form. It's just like, it makes sense. Let's just drop it. It doesn't make sense in an audio form. Like people looking at codes, they're going to need a reference in front of them. They're not going to listen to a thing over and over again to get it. But, you know, and then the website of the week, it's like, well. That was the first one to go. Yeah. It's like, okay, well, this is just silly. <laughs> I yeah. think I, I think what it was was back when it was just the three of us, you know, come the end of the show, each of us had a, a, a thing we would do, you know, website of the week. I think I did code of the week, blast from the past, you know. So each of us had a moment to talk right at the end of the program. You know, ultimately time goes on, things change, forms evolve, and here we are. Uh, so we'll both chime in on the blast from the past, which again, this week is us, the arcade. We are 15 years old and, you know. We joke on this program that we're old men, and even before we start this uh, recording for this episode, we joke that we're old men and just, you know, become older and cynical, and yeah, it happens. It just really happens. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you, we don't, it doesn't happen where we just try to, like, actively go out there and feel like you're old, because that's not a way to live. Like, that's not healthy. Like, I don't feel any older most of the time, but every now and then things happen in culture where I'm like, oh... I now relate to that Grandpa Simpson thing where he said, you know, he used to be hip and with it, and then they changed what it was and what became it became strange and scary to him. And that's, you know, that just kind of starts to happen where you're like, you start seeing culture evolve and you're like, wait, what the hell is that? People are into what now? What is that? Like, like we mentioned it earlier in the show, mukbangs. I found out what a mukbang was like a couple months ago and I'm kind of horrified. I'm like, why are these people popular with this? Like, like this is like, like it's like uh, what eating contests used to be, except like more regularly, and like you can see like the detrimental effect on people's health and stuff. Because like unlike an eating contest, which is a timed thing, like you have this much time, eat as many of these one specific thing as possible. Where it's like, yeah, that's not great, but I'm sure like there's ways to train yourself for this. Whereas like a mukbang is like, oh, we're gonna try to eat fifty thousand calories in one meal. I'm gonna have ten pizzas. You're like, oh, so you're just gonna be sick. Great. Okay, so you're just making yourself sick. And then there's channels where they do these all the time? I don't understand that. It's like, what's, what are you doing? <laughs> like, you're just gonna give yourself a heart attack. It's all you're doing. <laughs> so, not to get on some tangent about one specific thing, but like, that's an example. <laughs> you know? So a warning to, uh, to anyone out there who might be of a younger age, uh, it's gonna happen. Like, you're gonna, gonna be in your lane with things you understand and things you enjoy and your preferences, but the world and culture around you will change and shift, and you'll kind of turn and look at, you know, pop culture and what's going on at the moment and not be able to recognize it and not know what the hell happened. Yeah. 
it's going to happen. That is a warning to to young people and to anyone around uh, who's listening to this program. It's going to happen. We can speak from experience. When we started this show, we were in our early 20s, and now we're late 30s. Yeah. So it's like, as as one of my grandparents often says, growing up, it's not for sissies. <laughs> That grandparent would know. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, the arcade, I mean, we could take this moment to, you know, kind of, you know, look back on like, oh, the past 15 years in gaming and whatnot. And yeah, that's, that's a whole other episode, but we'll just say we have seen the popularization and modern acceptance of video games as a medium, as an art form, as a viable commercial endeavor as well. Yeah. So when this show started, uh, I recall, I think there, I recall specifically, there was one time we were doing it back when we used to do it live in the radio studio or live yeah. at the radio station. So, which also was not a setup entirely conducive for a good program because you would be on one side of the glass. I would be on the other side of the glass, opping all the boards and whatnot. And, you know, there's a distance between us, wouldn't really work. And we also uh, attempted to take phone calls at the time, too. So I distinctly recall leaving you hanging at one point, talking through a story and trying to fill as I was on the phone, taking a listener call. And the, yeah. list the listener call amounted to some dude bro, jocular type individual who was calling to ask if, oh, you know, video games and talking about video games would get us girls. Yeah. So I hung up promptly on that person, did not uh, validate them with any kind of response. The answer, in a weird way, by the way, is yes. So relax. <laughs> not, well, I mean, not specifically, but you know. Yeah. Answer yeah. was and always will be yes, by the way. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so eventually we moved from doing the show live at a specific time, you know, on a Friday night to you know, in studio, we realized that just wasn't entirely tenable. So we took, uh, the production of the show off site into what we called location B. Yeah. Which for a while was my parents' basement. And then, you know, an apartment I had and eventually like house and stuff. And yeah, it's like, and then it, you know, as the station died and like we, we, in hindsight, we should have been a podcast earlier just so we could have, you know, actually got more live followers and stuff. But, Anyway, lessons learned. Yeah, I mean, at the same time, too, in 2006, uh, podcasting was not the the robust, you know, very filled uh, uh, ocean of content that it is now. No, exactly. I think uh, the only uh, name I would have recognized doing a podcast uh, program at that time would have been Adam Carolla. Yeah, exactly. Adam Carolla or even like... Maybe Joe Rogan? Very, maybe Joe Rogan, maybe like Bill Burr. Maybe. He also has been doing his, you know, short form podcast for a long time, but yeah, not even Mark Marin really yet. So no, because Mark Marin didn't come until closer to like what twenty ten. Yeah, yeah. So, so yes, po podcasting wasn't an entirely popular or accepted medium at that point. We eventually moved into podcast once the station died, as you suggested. There were some hinky things going on behind the scenes. Nevertheless, uh, so, you know, that educational institution where I was in the communications program, which had a viable FM station, which was actually a really popular station, and we would have people come up to us out of the blue if we were out at a venue uh, or or location, whatever the case may have been, just out doing something, you know, 
amongst the two of us, you know, seeing a movie or whatever the case may have been, who would recognize our voices from the show, which was a total mind trip. Oh, yeah. Super bizarre. Very bizarre. Even people we knew from high school at that point would recognize us from the show and would listen to us, which was totally mind-blowing. Yes. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, but nevertheless, the uh, the program, we've been doing it. At this point, yes, we enjoy video games. We don't play as often as we used to. This is this is the thing that you know we will warn you about. No one ever tells you about, especially when you're young. You enjoy your time playing video games and doing whatever else. Yeah, enjoy it while you can. That goes away. Yeah, either because of work responsibilities or or responsibilities to your friends, your family, significant others, whatever the case may be. Your available time to just sit and enjoy playing video games that gets smaller and smaller as time goes along. Yeah. You also start, you know, wanting to do other things as well. And like you see your time is like a very valuable resource and you go, well, I could spend three hours doing video games or I could, you know, do this other thing and do like two other things or whatever else. And maybe I'll read a book. Maybe I'll go work out. Maybe I'll do this. Maybe I'll do that. And it's like, maybe I'll go cook some food. Maybe I'll do this. Like, you know, you like, hopefully as you get older, you get more broad in your interests and stuff and like, you shouldn't stop playing video games if they're a thing you like doing, but you're going to have less time to do them. Which uh, I think we've uh, made the comment on this program before that as you get older, uh, there's an inverse relationship between, you know, time and, and ability to afford video games uh, or the ability to afford video games and your time to play video games. Like, yeah. it, presumably you'll be, you know, working in some sort of decent, respectable job, making some okay pay, you know, being able to put a little extra aside and maybe splurge and spend on yourself when you see fit. Maybe you get a game first day. Maybe you get a new system first day, whatever the case might be. Oh, yeah, by the way, you'll have less time because you'll be pulled in different areas. Maybe you've got kids. Maybe you've got uh, just a robust friend life that uh, takes you out of the house in different directions, whatever the case might be. But you can afford all these games and all these systems. Hey, you'll get to them eventually. Yeah, pretty much. But that is the reality. And this is what we've learned in our time on doing this program. We still enjoy uh, talking about the content. But more so, it's really just an excuse for uh, Des and I to get together and actually just talk some uh, stupid fun shit. Yep, pretty much. So, uh, the arcade is officially 15 years old as of February 10th. If you have listened in the olden days when we were on terrestrial radio, we thank you. If you have joined us in the time since, as we have become a podcast, we thank you for that as well. We always enjoy your listening and hope you can join us again. Not for the next 15 years. We are not doing this show for another 15 years. Let's be clear about that. <laughs> no. That is a long amount of time. Yeah, we... We'll probably still have something going in some time, in, you know, 15 years, but probably not this show in particular. No. Uh, we, we have ideas of uh, different directions we would like to go uh, and what other content we would like to produce. Ultimately, those uh, ideas kind of get put on hold with the, pe- with the pandemic and the inability to actually be in the same physical space. Uh, we will pursue those ideas in the future, in the future once uh, we are able to again. Yeah. Yeah, so the arcade, like I said, 15 years old. If you have listened before, if you are listening now, if you uh, are going to tell someone to listen in the future, we thank you. Absolutely. 
So that about wraps us up for this week's edition of the program. We thank you so much for joining us. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. And as I said, if uh, you wish to reach out and touch us, uh, you can do that in the long form of the written word that is email. You can email us info at thearcadeshow.com or you can use the more recent modern inventions such as social media. We're on Twitter at The Arcade Show and on Facebook, facebook.com slash The Arcade Show. And uh, if you haven't already, you can uh, use that mobile device in your hand, that thing I like to call a magic phone, and subscribe to this program. We are on iTunes. We are on Google Podcasts. Direct links to our pages on both of those platforms can be found on our homepage of thearcadeshow.com. So that about wraps us up, and uh, we'll simply say until next time, good night, everybody. Good night. Hey, 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 hey,